everyone to this episode of the Effie Awards, the only non-violent award show out there. We're very proud of that. No one has slapped me in the face yet. Hopefully that will continue. Certainly, I'm not going to keep these nominees' names out of my bleeping mouth. Uh, actually, I do do that, so I guess we're good. All right, so I don't expect anybody to slap me. Let's continue on. Hi. Hi. I got us some champagne and a little Maui Wow, really heavy shit. I do not drink wine. Oh. And I do not smoke. Shit. Oh. So much for that. That was a scene from the movie Love at First Bite, the 1979 vampire spoof starring George Hamilton, and it's a nominee for Worst Love Scene. And here we have an Illinois lawyer who may have put a nail in his professional coffin by asking his client if he can bite her in the tookus. I just love to say that. You know that. Got to get that in every show. But he wanted to literally ask, could he bite her in the butt? And obviously, I, I need to explain. So, in August of 2018, a woman hires this lawyer to represent her in a divorce. During the course of familiarizing himself with the matter, the lawyer gets really, really familiar with the client via text message. Next two months, the two of them are sharing details in their lives in a series of 2,000 texts. And yeah, you heard that correctly. They share 2,000 texts in two months, which is about 1,500 more texts than my wife and I have shared in two decades. In any event, at some point, the lawyer got familiar enough with the client to let his fangs hang out, so to speak. And as a result, one night, he says, Vi would like to bite your ass. And yes, other than the horrible Transylvanian accent, that's an exact quote. I would like to bite your ass. Now in response, she said, Funny, I would love to see a movie and snuggle. To which Count Clueless replies, No movie, just snuggle. You naked? Guys, huddle up. Over the last few years, we've all learned that no means no, right? Well, guess what else means no? Uh, I would like to see a movie and snuggle. Yeah, yeah, that means no, uh, particularly when it's in response to an invitation for butt biting. Anything but please bite my butt means no, okay? This lawyer can't take the hint. So for the next several weeks, he's constantly asking, let me bite your butt. She keeps saying that she's just look, got a relationship, just looking for a friend. She wants to take it slow. And it's really sad because you don't need to read 2,000 texts to see just how just lonely and brokenhearted this woman is. She needs a friend. For instance, one night she texts, I can't believe I'm saying this because I've been so negative, but I have to believe it gets better. If I don't, what's the point? She follows it up with a kiss emoji. He kiss emojis back. Then she writes, wish we could cuddle and sleep. I haven't slept forever. And once again, now the count's fangs unfurl. Vu need great sex to sleep well. She replies, I need to feel loved and secure. By the way, what are you doing up so late? Peeing? <laughs> he replies, yeah. You want to watch? And I wish I was kidding. I'm not. Mercifully, all of this ends one day when the client sends a text saying, do you really love me or is it a friend love? She never gets an answer to this question because a text was intercepted by the lawyer's wife. 
And when the lawyer tells the client that his wife is now aware of the nonsense, the client wisely says, uh, I think I've had enough. Check, please. And that's what she does. <laughs> she fires a lawyer, gets another attorney, and then she spills all the garlic to the state bar. Now, we're just at the complaint stage. But one thing I like is that the Illinois bar seems loaded for bear at this point. Um, not only are they charging him with trying to sleep with the client, which is a violation, but also for his lies to the investigator. Because when first asked about the whole affair, of course, he says, I don't know what you're talking about. I didn't do any of that stuff. But who's going to ask to bite somebody's butt? That's not the way I do that. Which, by the way, there is no proper way to, to even ask that question. But, but moreover, he didn't realize that uh, they had the texts when they came and asked him. So he's obviously caught lying. And, and so when he says, oh, please, I said, what? You know how women get hormonal, hormonal, crazy. You know, I didn't do I did no such thing. Uh, they're like, uh, yes, you did. Look, see page 283. You said it, by the way, 22 times. But here's how you know that the Illinois bar is also looking to bite some butts. They charge a lawyer with something I've never seen before. Not just lying to the bar. They charge them with lying to the client. And not in the context of a work matter. I didn't do the work, etc. A lie of passion. <laughs> they said, you told this client you loved her. And you know, damn, well, you ain't love nobody with your cheating self. You married to somebody else. And we're going to get you for that one. Because dishonesty in any form, even outside of the practice of law, is a problem. Now, guys, this is a game changer. Um, we've been lying to women since, well, since we created language. I'm pretty sure that's why we created language in the first place, so we could lie to women. Uh, grog, respect Sheila. Grog in love. Bite butt now? Of course, I wasn't there, but I think that's pretty much how language started. But here, the Illinois Bar is saying, nope. As a lawyer and officer of the court, you have an obligation to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but hocks the truth. And it should be noted that they're charging him under Rule 8.4C. That's the rule that's not limited to legal representation. Under this rule, any act of dishonesty, fraud, deceit, or misrepresentation can get you in trouble can bite you in the tookus. And so somebody's getting tookus bitten. Now, fortunately, the people at the bar are married as well. And so it's unlikely they're going to take it that far, literally, and have all of us up in there next week. Because we've all been lying a little bit. But you can see here that they will reserve this tool for when uh, some tookuses need to be bitten. So um, be careful out there. Or better yet, only lie to your spouse as it's intended. I'm Eugene uh, Simonette. Oh. Hello. What is this assignment? Excuse me? What did you tell my son to make him bring a homeless man into my house? Uh, I have two problems. One, I have absolutely no idea what you're talking about, and two, I don't know who you are. Arlene McKinney, my boy is in your social studies class. Trevor? Trevor. Yes, he's very attentive. He's very uh, exigent, which I like. Exigent, it's challenging, testing. I know what it means. Would you like to tell me why my kid brought a bum into my house? I have no idea. Bullshit! Mrs. McKinney, I don't know how your son interpreted the assignment. How do you think he interpreted it? Well, I don't know. 
My suggestion to you is if you want to know, why don't you go home and talk to your son? Hey, I talked to him. Really? Then why did you come all the way down here to ask me what the assignment is? It's not a state secret. That was a scene from the movie Pay It Forward, a nominee in the category of least competent in a legal representation. And here we have a Pennsylvania lawyer who was constantly dropping the ball when it came to his clients. He failed to file lawsuits and required motions. He miscalculated amounts and misinterpreted the law. Now, let's be clear. That in and of itself is not effie worthy. It's what th this lawyer did afterwards that made it remarkable. See, normally in this situation, a lawyer will simply pull a David Copperfield and disappear. Or in the popular parlance, he'll ghost the client, right? Not return calls, letters, emails, hide in the bushes when they come over. On occasion, a lawyer might fess up, say, look, my bad, yo. But not this nominee. He decided he would pay his incompetence forward by literally, secretly reimbursing the, the client for the harm caused out of his own pocket. For instance, and in one case, this lawyer represented a commercial bank in a collection action. He starts the process and he files for a confession of judgment. Unfortunately, that judgment struck down for whatever reason. And so the client says, okay, okay, let's just do what we normally do and file foreclosure actions against all these properties we have. And the lawyer then went on to promptly not do that. However, he told him, oh yeah, I filed. Oh yeah, I filed a triplicate. And kept lying to him about it. Even went so far as to say, look, we foreclosed on the properties, they've had a sheriff's sale, and a third party bought the property. You're good. Now, none of this has happened. All right, the lawyer hasn't filed anything. So the client says, okay, that's great. Where's my money? Now, what's the lawyer gonna do? Now, amazingly, what he does is, he deposits $420,000 of his own money into his firm's bank account, and then has that amount dispersed out to the client and says, look, there's your money, you've been paid, good for you. Now, now, I don't know about you, but I would have found it much easier to admit that I screwed up. I didn't just give $400,000 to the client. I can only guess that the lawyer was planning to later right, follow through with the foreclosure, and then when those pro proceeds came in, he would recoup his loss. I don't even know how that was going to work, how many documents he was going to have to forge, how many lies he was going to have to tell, but at least I think that was the plan. However, the plan got thwarted when the lawyer fainted at a work-related event and broke his face. M more accurately, he fractured bones in his face, knocked out some of his teeth. He's in the hospital for five days. And during this time, his partners are scrambling, you know, to make sure that his clients are taken care of. And when they go through the records, they start discovering a bunch of irregularities, such as him depositing his own money into the firm's account to pay out clients, not just in this case, but other cases totaling about $100,000 more the lawyer had spent of his own money to make up on for his errors. Now, when confronted about it, the lawyer says, okay, you caught me. I I've been paying my errors forward. He resigns from the firm, and then he reports himself to the bar. And as a result, he eventually gets suspended in both Pennsylvania and New Jersey for four years. Now, you're probably thinking, what did the lawyer do wrong? Well, yeah, he made mistakes. But he made everything right by paying them out of his own pocket. Who's the victim here? And the answer is the victim is the truth. In each of these cases, the lawyer lied to the client repeatedly to cover up his own failures. And that's a no-no. Yeah, I know he eventually did good and made the client whole. 
But as my grandmother would say, uh, you can't do right by doing wrong, baby. And that principle applies here. Right? There's never going to be a situation in which the bar will sanction you lying to the client because you paid your way out of the lie. And in my view, in this case, the bar did the lawyer a favor by suspending him because he was eventually going to run out of money. How many $400,000 checks could he, could he write? And when he ran out of money, you know what the lawyer was going to do. He wouldn't have any more money to buy his way out of procrastination. So what he would start doing then is telling lies to the client that would exonerate him so they get nothing. We had this happen a few years ago when a lawyer missed a med medical malpractice deadline. He doesn't go to the client and say, hey, I screwed up. You need to sue me for malpractice. No, he calls the client and says, hey, sad news, girl. You lost. Sorry about that. Nothing really we can do. Take care. Never file the case. That is what happens when most cases here is that a lawyer will lie but not take responsibility. And you can't take responsibility if you run out of $400,000, certainly, to, to write checks from. The best, obviously, solution is not lie in the first place. Remember, you can't do right by doing wrong, baby. Don't do wrong, baby. Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. We must be over the rainbow. There was, of course, a scene from the classic movie, The Wizard of Oz. And this is our latest nominee for the Archie Bunker Award. The award we give each year to lawyers who engage in acts of discrimination, bigotry, right? Either verbal or otherwise. And this case is appropriate. I think the movie here is appropriate because it happened in Kansas. So we actually are in Kansas uh, still. We have here a lawyer who got suspended for a year for quote-unquote quite troubling behavior. Uh, specifically, this judge was Samuel Jackson in a robe. Um, he had the propensity to get full Pulp Fiction-y on litigants, lawyers, even his own staff. In fact, the staff kept a swear journal to document his obscene outbursts. And what I love about it is they didn't keep a swear jar. That would have been used to as a fun little thing to you know, keep track of and for everybody to make a little money and to have fun. No, no, no. They kept a journal because they knew they were going to eventually tell on him one day. And one day eventually came. Now in his defense, the judge says, bleep all y'all. Stop being such bleepity bleeps. Well, more accurately, what the judge said is, okay, all right. I might curse a little bit. Just a little bit. But, but I'm just salty. And some folks around here are like this. They find this approach down to earth. And in truth, since the gutter is pretty much as down to earth as you can get, I see his point. However, that wasn't what this judge's only problem. It isn't what got him the Archie Bunker nomination. Uh, what did was two parts. One, the foul and derogatory words, that's a quote, <laughs> that he directed at women who appeared before him. Uh, apparently, which please will not fly even in Kansas. Even if you're talking about the actual wicked witch of the West, still doesn't fly. In addition, the judge was in trouble for careless language he used when addressing black litigants. In two particular cases, he referred to young men, African-American men, as boy. Now, to be fair, the context does seem to be somewhat innocent. He said to one young man, for instance, you're a Kansas boy. 
you should know better. And the judge says, hey, I didn't mean anything by that. I refer to all young men in here as boys. And the state Supreme Court, believe it or not, they didn't reject that contention outright. They said, yeah, yeah, you, you probably do. Uh, but just so you know, uh, a lot of black folks uh, take offense to being called boy. And uh, we have a history here. And, and therefore, even if you didn't mean anything by it, you're given the appearance of bias. And we have enough problems around here already. All right, so as a result, all these things, you're going to need to spend about a year, get yourself in that time, a woke thesaurus, and upgrade your terms. And that is why this case is important for us to take to heart. I take this judge's word. I trust that he didn't mean anything by it. But the bottom line is that intentions are almost always impossible to accurately judge. I don't know what you're thinking. I have no idea what's in your mind. The only thing I can really judge you by is your words. And so it's really, really important to speak carefully. And particularly for lawyers and judges, people who make their living, right, speaking, words are the tools of our trade. You never get to misspoke. Why? Because you spoke for a living. That's not how that works. And the interesting thing here is that it's not just lawyers and judges. This applies to all of us. No matter what your profession, you won't do as well as you'd like to if you misspoke on these things. And let me give you a great example of something totally innocent, but came to bite someone in a us, or at least nip it. We had two Southwest, uh, Southwest uh, flight attendant. You know how Southwest is. They're always a lot of fun, right? <laughs> they say things, and one of the, so they're getting the plane loaded, and one of the flight attendants says, "Eeny, meeny, miny, mo, pick a seat, and off we go." Cute, light, fun, but there were two African American women on the plane who had a deeper understanding and context of eeny, meeny, miny, mo. That's the way, by the way, growing up black, we chose teams. Eeny, meeny, miny, mo. We, we weren't as woke uh, as we are now. I didn't realize that goes back further than 1973. That rhyme goes back to, to, to slavery days. And uh, one of the possible uses for it at the time was uh, eeny, meeny, miny, mo. Pick a, not tiger, but something that has a, that G sound in it. Uh, by the toe, if he won't work, uh, let him go. Eeny, meeny, miny, mo sort of a slave picker uh, <laughs> choosing uh, device. That, that's, that's not as, uh, as lighthearted and playful as um, we, we, all, we once thought. Now, the, I think the lawsuit, I'm sure at some point was settled. You know, nobody you know, lost their jobs, homes, etc. But it just shows that we've got to be a little careful with our words. And the more professional we are, and the more we depend on our words, the more accurate we need to do. So make sure at the end of this podcast, you get yourself the Woke Thesaurus. Uh, it's going to be available on um, our website, the Ethi website, uh, 1999. Um, make sure you get your copy so you don't lose your job. I don't recall what I got for my first Christmas. I don't know when I went on my first outdoor picnic, but I do remember the first time I heard the sweetest voice in the wide world. I had never seen anything so beautiful in my life. She was like an angel. You're gonna sit down, aren't you? What's wrong with your legs? I'm nothing at all, thank you. My legs are just fine and dandy. 
I just sat next to her on that bus and had a conversation all the way to school. My back's crooked like a question mark. These are gonna make you Next to Mama, no one ever talked to me or asked me questions. Are you stupid or something? Mama says stupid as a stupid does. I'm Jenny. I'm Forrest, Forrest Gump. From that day on, we was always together. Jenny and me was like peas and carrots. That was a clip from everyone's favorite movie, Forrest Gump. And like everything about that movie, uh, this is not your typical Ethy nominee. Uh, for one, this does not involve an actual disciplinary case, at least not yet. But this is a matter of national significance and therefore the Academy wanted to recognize it with a presumptive nomination for most conflicted in a legal setting. And the conflicted party is... Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas who is under increased scrutiny for conflicts of interest represented by his relationship with his very own Jenny. And so two of them, as you know, are like peas and carrots. And that's normally a great thing for a married couple. But here we have a problem because Jenny is very involved in conservative politics. She's a board member, a consultant, or you know, advisor to several right-wing organizations, people like you know, Turning Point USA. After the 2000 election, she was in regular contact with the White House as it tried to, quote-unquote, stop the steal. In fact, at present, the January 6th committee is reviewing text emails that she sent to the White House in the days and even hours leading up to that you know, dark day in American history. Now, what does that have to do with Justice Thomas? In an ideal world, nothing. All right? We don't punish people for whatever their spouses are involved in. The problem here is that some of the organizations that Jenna represents and, and, and the causes that she champions will come before the Supreme Court at some point. So, for instance, after the 2002 election, the Supreme Court was required to step in and reject challenges of voter fraud that were you know, brought by several states, states like Texas. They were seeking to overturn the results of the election. And in one case, they came before the court. Clarence Thomas is one of the only two justices who actually would have let the case go forward. Now, there's no guarantee he would have ruled to stop the steal and overturn the election. But, you know, it, it is, obviously, seems to be somewhat conflicting. Most recently, the January 6th committee had gone to the Supreme Court uh, to get the National Archives to turn over the Trump administration's records relating to that day. And Justice Thomas was the sole justice on the Supreme Court to deny the request, a request that ultimately released his wife's uh, text to the committee. So needless to say, this is a situation that's got legal ethicists pulling out our hair. And as you can imagine, we don't have a lot of hair to start with. Now, it, it's clearly established that judges must recuse themselves in cases involving either their own interest or interests of their family members. Uh, but here's where it gets murky. Um, one, the Supreme Court justices are not subject to the ethics rules that govern every other federal judge. And while the judges are, justices are supposed to recuse themselves in case of conflicts, and they often do, there's nothing to make them do it. Uh, for now, they simply go in the honor code. They don't have to justify their decisions. Just simply show up. Of course, most often judges are more than happy to do the right thing. Most often, for instance, when a new Supreme Court justice comes on the court, they will recuse themselves in all the cases that they had heard on the lower courts. A few years ago, when Justice Kagan was appointed by Obama, she had, before getting on the Supreme Court, had been the Solicitor General, basically the U.S. government's Supreme Court lawyer. 
So every one of those cases in which the, her department had taken a position, which she had argued, she recused herself in those cases, said, hey, I'm not even going to, I don't want the, even the appearance of impropriety. Even Justice Thomas himself recused himself a few years back in a case involving a college dispute. Uh, one of the parties was a college in which his son just attended as a student. And, and Justice Thomas said, you know what, that, that's still going to look bad. I'm going to recuse myself. So it's a little strange that he'd rule in a case involving, at least in part, his wife's emails. Now, this isn't a new problem. It's been around for years. There was a, a big brouhaha in um, the early 2000s, mid-2000s, um, due to the relationship, the chummy relationship between then Justice Scalia and Vice President Dick Cheney. They were hunting buddies. And as a result, a lot of people said, hey, when cases come before the court that are challenging actions of the Bush administration, sometimes Cheney directly with regard to some of his activities, that Scalia should step down. And Scalia was like, no, I'm not going to step down. <laughs> now, some people say, well, well, this is obvious. Bush is your buddy. Second of all, you know uh, Cheney uh, will shoot people in the face from time to time. So we're suspecting that, you know, you don't, you're not making these decisions by yourself. You're a little scared. <laughs> but even more than that, what Scalia said was, in fairness, look, you got to trust justices in this regard. I'm a big time Supreme Court justice. I live in D.C. Everybody I hang out with is big and powerful. My job is to interpret the Constitution as it applies to the actions of the big and powerful the U.S. government, for instance. I can't just recuse myself every time the U.S. government is a party to these cases, the party to really the, the big cases. And you got to trust that I can do this. I'm not going to be hanging out just with anybody. I'm not hanging out in Chili's on Friday. All right. All my friends are going to be big time people. And therefore, you got to trust that I can see beyond that. And that's not an unusual case or an unusual argument. That's actually part of, I think, where Clarence Thomas is coming down here. He said, yes, my wife is a big time you know, activist and conservative mover and thinker, represents all these groups. But you got to be able to look past, trust me, to look past all that. All right. Because if that's the case, everybody around here is conflicted. We're all friends with someone from the Federalist Society, from some other group that's going to have the ACLU, some other group that's going to have some uh, bearing on, on these cases. And we can't just all recuse ourselves every time that there could be some possible conflict between our spouse and whatever interest they have. That said, Justice Thomas and Janae, uh, their situation is a little different than a lot of people. It's not just these informal ties and friendships, etc. But these are business relationships and partnerships that Jenny Thomas has with a lot of movers and shakers. Uh, people like people in the Project Veritas, which has been petitioning the court to strike down a Massachusetts law, or uh, the Public Interest Found a Legal Foundation, uh, which regularly submits friends of the court briefs in a number of hot button issues. One of the partners that uh, Jenny Thomas has is the National Association of Scholars, which is instrumental in the driving force behind the big affirmative action case. Next term, some group is challenging affirmative action in higher education. Huge stakes, obviously. And the idea is that none of the justices should be potentially conflicted because their spouse has a, a consulting contract, an advisory position, something that would put their finger on the scale, so to speak. So here's the thing is, Thomas seems pretty clear that he's not going to recuse himself. He's going to say these are not conflicts. you got to trust me. I'm bigger than this. 
the fact that he didn't recuse himself in the case involving his wife's email should let us know that he's probably not going to recuse himself in the other ones. The only thing that could then be done is, one, there is impeachment. Impeachment, however, seems really a stretch here. Um, one, high crimes and misdemeanors. It's pretty difficult to argue that it's a high crime for your spouse to have a high-powered position, right? Um, the other thing, of course, um, is that Justice Roberts could possibly help here. The Supreme Court, as I said, is operating sort of blind here. They don't have official guidance in the sense that there's not a set of rules that apply to them definitively. What should happen, and what people have been edging, uh, urging for years, is for the Supreme Court to come out with a code of conduct that deals with recusals and even says, hey, okay, if you're going to recuse yourself or not recuse yourself, and there's a reason to suspect you should, you should have to justify that decision. Make sure that you at least can put down on paper and explain to us why this is not a conflict. You could even go further and have a provision that says, okay, the rest of the judges will then vote and they can overrule you and make you recuse yourself if you don't have the good sense to do it yourself. But this is a conflict that is going to continue on uh, going forward, something that you're going to hear about in the news a lot. So I want to make sure that in this context, at least I, I, I gave my two cents uh, to try to explain it to you. That said, um, we're going to next week come back with three equally ridiculous, more ridiculous cases. I'm going to sh up the bar for more ridiculous uh, in the meantime, uh, make sure that you keep uh, Jenny Thomas's name out your bleeping mouth. And finally, if you're a lawyer and you need your CLE, don't hesitate to get it from Mesa CLE. This is your comedic legal education, but it still counts as CLE. Mesa, M-E-S-A, CLE.com. If you'd like to become a patron of the podcast, please feel free to go to Patreon.com. Either look us up at Mesa CLE or the Ethi Awards. And we thank you so much. See you next time.